Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. We begin tonight with breaking news from the White House. Chief of Staff John Kelly is denying a report that he used the word idiot to describe the president. And now his office is pushing back on our reporting that Kelly used another unflattering word to describe his boss. CNN senior White House correspondent Pamela Brown joins us with details. So what are you learning, Pamela? Well, Anderson, a senior administration official tells my colleague Jeremy Diamond that White House Chief of Staff John Kelly told senior national security officials last month that he believed the president was becoming, quote, unhinged, uh, a sign viewed by the members in that meeting that Kelly has grown increasingly frustrated with President Trump in recent months. Now, the official said he made the comment in a, quote, moment of frustration, calling the president unhinged at a meeting with Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Joseph Dunford, and senior National Security Council officials. But Kelly's comment, Anderson, came as the officials deliberated on the future of the U.S. effort in Syria and following Trump's off-the-cuff comments saying that he was determined to get U.S. troops out of the country, Anderson. And what's John Kelly saying in response? Well, John Kelly released a statement earlier today in response to another story, an NBC report that he called the president an idiot uh, in a recent meeting. John Kelly releasing this statement saying, I spend more time with the president than anyone else, and we have an incredibly candid and strong relationship. He always knows where I stand, and he and I both know this story is total BS. I am committed to the president, his agenda, and our country. This is another pathetic attempt to smear people close to President Trump and distract from the administration's many successes. Also, Anderson, I spoke with John Kelly's deputy, Zachary Fuentes, in the White House tonight. He flatly denied that Kelly ever called the president unhinged, uh, saying that Kelly has deep respect for the office of the presidency and for President Trump himself. Fuentes says that's not a word that Kelly would use, first of all, and that Kelly wouldn't tolerate that kind of criticizing of the president of the United States as uh, someone who has served in the military as a Marine. Uh, but he did acknowledge, Anderson, that Kelly and, and the president do have disagreements from time to time as any chief of staff and president would. He explained oftentimes their disagreements come out of mutual respect of challenging each other's opinions. But in the end, Kelly will carry out whatever decision the president makes. And he says that they should be able to have a kind of conversation and be allowed to let their hair down behind closed doors, Anderson. I understand the president is also tweeting his response. That's right. No surprise here that the president took to Twitter uh, in the wake of these reports. And here's what the president said. The fake news is going crazy, making up false stories and using only unnamed sources who don't exist, in parentheses. They are totally unhinged. And the great success of this administration is making them do and say things that even they can't believe they are saying truly bad people. This is a consistent theme, as you know, Anderson, with the president calling the new, the media fake news, saying that the sources don't exist, which is simply uh, not true. Um, but of course, you know, this is his chief of staff. And so it's no surprising that he would want to weigh in, especially when the news broke, that NBC report broke, when the president and John Kelly 
Kelly were in the Oval Office together. And at that point, John Kelly denied that he ever said anything like that about the president. This is just another instance, though, of tension between Kelly and, and President Trump. What's the bigger picture here in terms of their relationship? Well, big picture here in talking to several White House officials, uh, Anderson, is that there has been some deterioration of their relationship uh, and, and Kelly's standing in the West Wing. Uh, it's been publicly evident at times with what Kelly has said and done. As you'll remember his remark on Fox News that Trump's views have evolved on immigration. Um, you know, there was the off-the-record meetings, the fact that he was in the hot water over the Porter situation and then held those off-the-record meetings with reporters. Some of that actually leaked out. Uh, the elevation of Kudlow and Bolton and the fact that they have direct access to the president. And then, of course, as we reported last week, the president returning to use his uh, personal cell phone in recent weeks as a way to potentially get around Kelly. Um, but I will say there are others, and I spoke to, to Kelly's deputy about this as well, uh, who sort of pushed back at that notion, uh, saying that, look, these are two men who have a great relationship. Uh, they have mutual respect for each other. Yes, they disagree. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that the president wants Kelly out or that Kelly wants to leave. So it sort of depends on who you talk to uh, in terms of understanding the dynamic between the two men and Kelly standing in the West Wing. Anderson. All right, Pamela Brown, thanks very much. Stay with us. Yep. I want to bring in our chief and, uh, political analyst, Gloria Borger, and retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurdling, who served with Kelly in Iraq. Gloria, I know you've been talking to sources as well. What's the latest you're hearing? Yeah, I, I want to echo a little bit about, about what Pamela said, because uh, the sources I talked to who are friends of the president say that he's been unhappy and complaining about Kelly privately for a number of reasons. One of them was that he was unhappy when he told members of Congress that the president, uh, you know, wasn't fully informed on this question of of immigration. Also, he kind of rankled it the way that uh, he felt that, that Kelly had botched the Rob Porter uh, security clearance issue and that he really didn't like the way that Kelly had isolated him from his friends. You know, he used to call his friends all the time. I'm told uh, that now sometimes he retreats actually to the situation room to call his friends so he can have some privacy, even though as Pam Pamela reports uh, that he did get his cell phone back. But he, you know, he had to retreat there to get some to get some access to the people he's used wait, to talking to every day. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Sorry. I just want to make sure I heard you right. Yes. You're saying the president of the United States goes into the situation room he to get away from the chief of staff and call his well, friends? I am told by one friend of the president's that on more than one occasion, he has been called uh, by the president from the Situation Room. Yep. Wow. General Hurdling, I mean, you know General Kelly. Does any of this ring true to you, that he might be critical of the president in private, that he might be in, frustrated yeah. even going so far as calling the president unhinged or an idiot? Well, Chief of Staff Kelly, I won't call him general because he's out of that position now, uh, has been brought up in a military organization where demeanor and professionalism and character are all very important to leadership because it helps establish trust. But the other thing that's important here, Anderson, is that uh, personalities matter and context is important whenever you're talking about how you deal with other people and under what situations. When I was working with General Kelly in northern Iraq and he was in western Iraq, I always saw him to be professional. His demeanor was always calm. He was cool, collected under the stresses of combat. Uh, but I can imagine that the stressors of the White House are much greater than what uh, any of us might uh, have experienced in combat. So I'm sure there is some 
time for venting of anger, venting of frustrations. And sometimes when people are around you, maybe some of these sources that you're hearing from, uh, when they hear that venting, they, they take it a lot more seriously. Or, on the other hand, there's somebody in the White House or many people in the White House that are out to get uh, General Kelly. I don't know. Pamela, I mean, the fact the president took to Twitter tonight in fairly short order to push back on these reports, it, 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 I mean, how rattled does he get by stories that the West Wing is hobbled by friction? He, he does not like it, to say the least. In fact, uh, officials I speak with say that oftentimes the president will be more focused on the, the negative publicity more than what the report is actually about. In other words, he doesn't like it uh, when there is, are negative stories surrounding people close to him. He, he views it as a distraction taken away uh, from him and what he is working on. Uh, and I think that you can see that reflected not only with the president taking to Twitter uh, to push back on this, but also in the on the record record statement uh, from the chief of staff himself, which is uh, pretty unusual. That's not something that you get every day from John Kelly, despite all of the numerous stories that, that you know, are out there about John Kelly Anderson. Gloria, I mean, how much has Kelly's influence waned? You know, we've heard all those stories about the president uh, kind of feeling more, uh, you know, uh, capable to do stuff on his own, the whole issue with the phone. I mean, if Kelly were to ever leave by choice or otherwise, is there any indication Right now, the president believes he even needs another chief of staff? <laughs> I think I think the president probably believes that he can run the White House by himself uh, the way he ran the Trump organization. Uh, however, uh, there's no doubt that if Kelly were to leave, he would need another chief of staff. But that person would have to understand that this is a different Donald Trump they're dealing with. This is someone who now believes he's got it. He's figured out how to run the White House. He's bringing in people uh, he wants, he's comfortable with. Uh, that's why, uh, for example, he wanted, uh, you know, he wanted uh, his personal doctor to go run the VA, for example. And that he thinks he can do it alone. And he is the one, make no mistake about it, any new chief of staff would have to realize that he is the one who would be making all of the decisions and and would be running the White House the way he wants to run the White House, with an open-door policy, inviting people to come in and chat all the time. And so it would be a very, very different kind of chief of staff and um, a very different role from the one that we're used to seeing in any White House. And I, can I just jump yeah. in very quickly, Anderson, if that's okay? Because I do think it's important, um, you know, to, to, to get the other, to Kelly's side on this, now that uh, even his office is, is coming forward and being on the record, they're saying, they're claiming that, look, Kelly's influence isn't waning here. Uh, that essentially when Kelly came in, people would just walk into the Oval Office willy-nilly, then Kelly put in order, and now people will still go directly to the president, but then back channel to Kelly to fill him in on what's going on. So while it may appear that his influence is diminishing, he's not in the Oval Office as much, it's more of the structure that Kelly uh, has put into place there. General Hurtling, you know, go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah you know what, what I'd say, too, to add to that, and Pamela brings up a very good point, we're now in uh, post-first year of Mr. Trump, we are now getting into some pretty intense situations, more so uh, than some of the things he experienced with the domestic issues. He's now involved in foreign affairs. There are multiple issues happening all around the world that he's having influence on or attempting to have influence. And after a year of experience, I think the president believes he can do these things. You know, uh, Chief Kelly, Chief of Staff Kelly, 
Kelly spent 40 years uh, with intergovernmental affairs, multinational affairs, knowing the inner workings of government. I'm sure that he is extremely frustrated to see someone who perhaps doesn't have the experience uh, doing some things based on gut feel that uh, uh, Chief Kelly knows are probably going to go south very quickly unless he intercedes in some of these things. So I'm sure that's contributing a lot to the frustrations as you know, well. I think the problem generally is the unpredictability of the president. Mm -hmm. You wake up in the morning, you see what he's tweeted. It may not be the thing that you talked about the night before. <laughs> it may set the day in a totally different direction from the one you wanted or you had planned on. And the unpredictability of the president's views are also something that I think probably rankles uh, anybody who who tries to work with him on, on particular mm -hmm. issues. And I'm sure uh, Kelly is one of those people who has had that kind of a problem. And as the chief of staff, too, I would suggest uh, uh, John Kelly's uh, main purpose in life is to control and establish process and make things go smoothly. He's working for a guy where he has no control. The processes are all askew, and things never go smoothly. As Gloria just said, you wake up, and it's always a new set of dynamics on a daily basis. That's got to drive a chief of staff who's trying to set an agenda crazy. Yeah. Uh, General Hurtling, thanks very much. Gloria Borger, uh, Pamela Brown as well. Pamela, stay with us. Uh, well, actually, coming up, uh, another lawsuit by Stormy Daniels has been filed. This one accusing the president of defamation over a tweet he posted. I'll speak with her attorney next. Also, had more breaking news tonight about the allegations against Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who's withdrawn as the president's pick to head the VA. What we're learning next. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. Tonight, there's a new lawsuit against the president over one of his tweets. The porn star Stormy Daniels is suing the president for defamation. This is separate from her lawsuit against the president's attorney, Michael Cohen. The new lawsuit is over the sketch of a man who Daniels says threatened her years ago after talking about her alleged sexual encounter with the president. The president tweeted, quote, a sketch years later about a non-existent man, a total con job playing the fake news media for fools, but they know it. Joining me now is Stormy Daniels attorney Michael Avenatti and CNN legal analyst Paul Callen, former professor of media law at Seton Hall University. So, Michael, explain to me how you how why filed this defamation suit and how you how the president defamed Stormy Daniels with that tweet. Well, Anderson, we made it known uh, in the day after the president sending this tweet that we were going to bring this case. Uh, we were considering whether to bring it in, in Los Angeles in connection with the other lawsuit right. or a separate lawsuit. We decided to file it here. You know, we believe effectively that the president called uh, my client a liar. By saying uh, it's a con job. That, that by saying it's a con job and, and effectively uh, accused her of, of committing a crime and that um, it's, she maintains that she was assaulted by the side of her car. Difference between assault and battery, but she was assaulted at the side of her car and she identified this individual by way of this sketch, which took a considerable amount of time to prepare uh, and publish. Uh, and we want to hold the president accountable for his statement. Um, Paul, I mean, reading the case file, is this a provable case of a defamation? Because with defamation, 
against a public figure, it's a higher bar than it is against a somebody who's not, right? Yes, and you know, uh, Anderson, defamation cases, even good defamation cases, are hard to win in court, uh, and because they're of the discovery involved and proving actual damages in the case. But this case, I think, is going to be extraordinarily difficult. And the defense will be that this is simply an expression of opinion by the president, which he's allowed to express, and that is considered non-defamatory under uh, defamation law. And also because Stormy Daniels has really voluntarily become a public figure herself, you now have the additional burden that uh, Michael will have to prove that the president acted with actual malice in making the statements uh, that he did. And I think uh, there's a very, very strong likelihood that this case will get tossed by a judge at an early stage. Do you, do you find that malice would be something hard to prove that the president has towards I, I, I think it probably will be hard to prove, Anderson, but two points. I mean, first of all, I've been proving hard cases my entire career, and I'm confident in this one. And secondly, if the president continues to do what he's done over the last seven weeks, he's going to probably take a lot of steps to help us along the way. I mean, he's going to probably this, be the second best attorney for us on the case, and I'm confident that he's going to help us. There are those, um, you know, I've heard some legal analysts say that because your uh, your actual lawsuit uh, against Michael Cohen has uh, there's a 90 day stay on it that this is some sort of maneuver either to you know keep keep the case going in some way in just a different avenue in the state of New York. Well, I mean that's completely bogus. It's baseless, Anderson. Because like I said two weeks ago when the tweet was made, I made it known publicly at that time that we were going to be bringing a lawsuit or a claim over this tweet. I announced it publicly. It widely spread. And we were either going to bring that claim in Los Angeles or bring it as a separate matter in a separate venue. And that was long before the stay was issued. So this has been in the works for some time. But the question is, but why here in New York? The tweet was sent from Washington, D.C. by the president. Your client lives in California. It seems to me California would have been the more appropriate venue or possibly even Washington, D.C. However, there are an awful lot of television stations here in New York, which a lot of people say that's the reason that you've decided to come to New York with the litigation. Well, if you've been paying attention, I don't have any problem getting on TV. Number one, that. number one, um, I could be on TV anywhere in the world at any given time at this point, so I don't need to follow New York to be on TV. Well, it's nice Wait. to be able to walk directly into the studio in New York. Well, but I, You're sitting here next to Anderson and not coming in via but, but I But I live in... But I live, let's be clear about something. I live in L.A., and my client actually lives in Dallas. She doesn't live in Los Angeles. Well, Dallas so, would have been me, another excellent no, venue me, for you to choose so, if so, she lives in Dallas. So before you, before you opine on my case, you probably should do your homework. She lives in Dallas. She doesn't live in L.A. We filed here in New York because the president is a resident of the state of New York. He's a resident of Trump Tower. He's never formally changed his residency to the White House. In fact, he doesn't spend a lot of time there. He spends a lot of time down in Florida but not at the White House. So, look, there's no question that Vinny's proper... He's only proper. been back to New York once since Do, he was elected president. Do, does, though, yeah. filing this separate case, this can move forward even if there's a stay in the actual lawsuit? Is that correct? Absolutely. There, there's, this, this case has nothing to do with the case in Los Angeles. Even though, I mean, they are... I mean, they're... I mean, aren't they connected in some way? Because, I mean, this sketch would not have been put out if this lawsuit hadn't been filed. Well, but, not exactly. legally, well, not they're, they're disconnected. Not exactly. I mean, the, the case in Los Angeles uh, results from the NDA and our attempts to invalidate the NDA and the defamation associated with claims that there was no affair by Michael Cohen. Mm. That's one issue. This issue is separate apart in that it relates to the tweet that was sent about two weeks ago by the president relating to this sketch and what he claims to be the non-existent man. And, and let me make this point. 
How does the president know that the man is non-existent? If he knew nothing about this, had no involvement with Stormy Daniels, knew nothing of the agreement, knew nothing of the alleged threat, how does he know there was no non-existent man? It makes absolutely zero sense. In something like a defamation case, what is the, if there is a judgment in Stormy Daniels' favor, is that a monetary judgment? How does that work? It's a, it's a monetary judgment that could be collected against the individual, and in this case, it would be against Mr. Trump. And, and why not include, uh, has Michael Cohen said anything that you think is defamation? against Stormy Daniels? I mean, could you see a day where you would include Michael Cohen in something like that? Not in this particular case, because he hasn't commented on the sketch or the alleged assault. Mm -hmm. You know, on that, and that's a great issue, Anderson. I I was just curious, Michael, on the issue of damages, um, she, uh, your client, has made anywhere from 200 to 500 pornographic movies, from what I've read about her, including... From what you've read or what you've seen? No, no, from what I've read. Okay. Um, And um, some of the titles are great, but I I would read them, but this is... uh, Children may be watching, so we'll we'll avoid that. And the question is, she's suing for the damage of being called a liar, and you have to prove damage to her reputation. Do you think that you have a realistic possibility of having a jury of ordinary people say that her reputation has been damaged? Well, first of all, as you know, what we've pled is is that per se defamation under New York law, and we don't have to prove special damages in connection with that, but we'll be prepared to to prove special damages in the event that we're required and to do so. what would the special damages so, be? So I'm, so I'm confident that we're going to be able to prove... But what would they be? But you got to stop interrupting me. Well, I'm just curious. All what right. would the special damages so be? So all I'm asking is that you stop interrupting me. We're going to be able to prove special damages. We're going to be able to prove per se defamation. What's if we weren't, spe- what's if we weren't able, Michael, if we weren't able to, spe- we have we a have judge, a magnitude. A judge we have a magnitude, court, but you're not a, a judge. You're if, not a judge. If you're in you're court, a judge. a judge is going to say to you, yep. "What, sir, special damages are you proving here?" And you know what? When I have and a what judge, would your answer be? When I have well, a judge, when I have a judge ask me that question, as opposed to somebody that's not prepared. There are no special damages. How do you know that? You don't know anything about the case. Wait a minute. You don't know anything about. Are you arguing that just because somebody? Is, a, is, is an adult is star. A, is an adult film that they cannot be defamed, that they cannot exactly have... Anderson, Anderson, I've tried a lot of cases through the years, mm-hmm. all right? And as a, a, a matter of principle, you're probably right. Somebody who's made 500 pornographic films can be defamed, in theory. But you put 12 ordinary people on a jury and say to them, award her money because somebody called her a liar... I think you'd have a hard time mm. getting a substantial yeah. damage award. Now, maybe you'd get a symbolic award. Sometimes jurors say we'll award a dollar in damages uh, to send a message that we won't tolerate this sort of thing. But actual damages justifying all of the effort that's gone into this lawsuit, I don't see it, which means the lawsuit is a publicity lawsuit and a publicity stunt, and that's really all it is. All right, final thought from you, Michael, and we got to go. Well, I mean, clearly it's not a publicity stunt. If we didn't think we had a good found basis for the lawsuit, we wouldn't have found it. And if I had a dollar for every time a guy that was unprepared to talk about something actually told me it was a publicity stunt or we weren't going to prevail, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I'd be on, on my own private island, Anderson. All right, Michael Avenatti, Thank you. Paul, Paul Callen, thanks yeah. very much. Uh, there is breaking news tonight from the Washington Post. The president has delayed his promised tariffs on steel and aluminum for Canada, Mexico, and the European Union. The tariffs are now delayed until June 1st, according to The Post. Up next, more breaking news, the new allegations against Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who withdrew as VA nominee last week. Remember, to create an ad like this one, visit purewinning.com CNN. Another CNN exclusive now. There are new allegations tonight against Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who withdrew as the president's pick to lead the VA and who's no longer the president's physician. 
The new information in a moment. But first, President Trump is attacking the ranking Democrat on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee who revealed the claims against Jackson last week. Among the allegations against the rear admiral, admiral improperly dispensing medicine in the White House, crashing a government vehicle, and excessive drinking on the job. Now, the president is defending Jackson and fired off a series of tweets about the scandal this weekend. Here's one of them. The president said, quote, Secret Service has just informed me that Senator John Tester's statements on Admiral Jackson are not true. There were no such findings. A horrible thing that we in D.C. must live with, just like phony Russian collusion. Tester should lose race in Montana, very dishonest and sick. Well, it was on this program last Tuesday when Senator Tester first shared one of the most serious allegations against Jackson. Take a look. And I understand he had a nickname in the White House yeah, among it, some yep. of the White House staff. And, and it, was, it was the candy man because he handed out prescription drugs like they were candy. The, 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 the White House doctor, his nickname among some people in the White House was the candy man. That's correct. That's correct. That's what we were told. That's not a nickname you want in a doctor. Well, that was last week. The controversy is not over. As I mentioned, there are new allegations tonight. Manu Raja joins us with the details. So understand these allegations are from this past fall. What have you learned? Yeah, that's right. We're learning that these serious concerns about Ronnie Jackson's conduct did stretch back into last fall when the vice president's physician raised alarms within the White House over Jackson's behavior and conduct. Now, Pence's physician wrote three detailed memos that we have obtained that highlight what the physician said was, quote, intimidating and aggressive behavior that made the physician feel uncomfortable because of multiple conversations they had, confrontations that they had over a medical issue involving the second Second Lady of the United States, Karen Pence. Now, Pence's physician relayed concerns to White House officials last September that Jackson may have violated the HIPAA law, which protects patients' rights when discussing the medical situation involving Mrs. Pence with senior White House officials and medical providers. Now, after being briefed on the matter, Mrs. Pence did express her own concerns to the physician about a potential HIPAA violation and asked of the vice president's chief of staff, Nick Ayers, informed the White House chief of staff, John Kelly, about what happened. Now, afterwards, Anderson, Pence's physician wrote in multiple memos of having two very uncomfortable and intimidating conversations with Jackson, including one in which Jackson allegedly told the physician to, quote, let things go over the matter to help the physician's career. Now, Anderson, I'll read one thing the physician wrote about a meeting that they had. It said a meeting that was summoned by Dr. Jackson appears to have been in retribution for me verbalizing concerns over the protection of the Slotus's medical information, that's referring to the second lady of the United States, and his inappropriate involvement in the decision-making process of her care, which is consistent with the behavior that I have received from him in the past and Anderson, this is also consistent with these allegations raised by these unnamed individual individuals who raise those concerns with Senator Tester over the past couple of weeks. L- let me just make, it, make be clear about something you, you said previously but before reading that that uh, that letter. Um, you, that the the vice president's attorney is saying that uh, Jackson told him to let this go in order to help uh, the vice president's attorney. I mean, excuse me, the vice president's doctor's career. That's right. So he's essentially saying that that Jackson was threatening him. In 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 some way, the the physician is saying that that Jackson should quote the physician that Jackson said let things go in order to help your career. This is what the physician wrote in one of those memos. How's the vice president's office responding? 
While the vice president's office confirmed that the chief of staff, Nick Ayers, was informed about this episode by the vice president's physician, and Mr. Ayers referred the matter, according to a spokeswoman for the vice president's office, to the, quote, proper channels. The same spokeswoman also said that Mrs. Pence also had been briefed on the facts, and Mrs. Pence was, quote, grateful for the care she received by, quote, all personnel involved. They consider the matter closed. The White House also declined to comment on Jackson's behalf. But a White House official did tell me that Ayers informed Kelly and Deputy Chief of Staff Joe Hagan about the controversy last fall. Kelly, Kelly got a copy of these memos. They referred the Pence doctor to the appropriate chain of command to the military and medical offices at the White House, but it's unclear what happened after that. And the president, he's obviously been attacking Senator Tester. These concerns about Dr. Jackson came from both sides of the aisle of the Veterans Affairs Committee, right? Yeah, no question about it. The Republicans on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee were aware of some of these, who some of these sources were who came forward, and several of them told me they believed those were credible voices that needed to be listened to and fully investigated, and a lot of them were military personnel. Now, just today, Anderson, Johnny Isaacson, the Republican who chairs this Veterans Affairs Committee in the Senate, would not join in on the president's attacks on Tester. He told our colleague Ted Barrett that every senator has a right to exercise his or her options, and Isaacson told me last week he didn't even try to stop Tester, and perhaps that's in part because the veterans groups, too, were uneasy about Jackson's nomination. Oh, fascinating. Mano, thanks very much for the reporting. Coming up, the vice president visits a border town in California and says it's the beginning of the promise to build a wall. He also weighs in on the caravan of migrants with a statement that's false. We're keeping him honest next. I'm Andy Katz from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Tonight, keeping them honest, the border, the border between the United States and Mexico, and the border between what the Trump administration is saying and the facts. After traveling by bus, train, and on foot for almost a month, about 100 migrants from Central America have arrived at the U.S.-Mexico border trying to seek asylum. The president has vowed not to let them into the country and has used the caravan to push the need for more security at the border and his wall. Today, Vice President Mike Pence was in the border town of Calexico, California, and another town nearby. He gave a speech and spoke with Customs and Border Protection employees and said this about the migrants. As President Trump said on Saturday night, this situation is a direct result of our weak immigration laws and our porous border. This caravan, like those who have gone before, is also rightly understood as a deliberate attempt to undermine the laws of this country and the sovereignty of the United States. Well, keep it honest, there is no attempt to undermine the laws of the country. These migrants are seeking asylum, which allows people fleeing persecution to live legally in a different country. Now, you can disagree whether or not they should be granted that asylum. That's up to you. But there's nothing actually unlawful about asking. In fact, international law requires countries to hear their requests. These migrants are from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. More than 75 percent of applicants from those countries were rejected between 2011 and 2016. Still, the law is clear. They have a right to try. Pence also said this today. Thanks to the leadership of President Donald Trump, we are protecting the American people by securing our southern border. And we are building a wall on the southern border of the United States of America. And let me make you a promise. When it comes to the border wall, we're going to build it all. 
So the vice president says we are building a wall on the southern border. Keep it honest, however, we are not actually building a wall on the southern border. No, no matter how many times the president and his administration say it, no matter how many times the president tweets it, it has not started. It has not been funded. It is not being built right now. This is a movie we've seen before. Listen to what the president said to a crowd in Ohio at the end of March. We started building our wall. I'm so proud of it. We started. We started. We have 1.6 billion. And we've already started. You saw the pictures yesterday. I said, what a thing of beauty. So that's not accurate. That $1.6 billion, that was in the spending bill the president signed, $1.6 billion for border security, some of which can be used to bolster existing fencing, not new fence, existing fence. The spending bill, to the president's dismay, did not include funding for his wall, which, by the way, he spent months claiming Mexico was going to pay for anyway. He tweeted this around the same time. Great briefing this afternoon on the start of our southern border wall. That tweet came with photos trying to prove his point. You see the photos there. Again, the border wall has not been started there or anywhere. Those pictures the president tweeted were taken in Calexico, the same Calexico where the vice president was today. So figuring the administration might again try and misrepresent what was actually going on there, we sent our Gary Tuckman to ask the vice president some questions. Mr. Vice President, this is a fence replacement project. There's been a fence here for decades. This is nothing new. President Trump tweeted that this is the beginning of our southern border wall. Will you acknowledge this is not the beginning of the southern border wall that he promised voters? This is the beginning of the southern border wall. This was from fiscal 17 budget. This is a replacement project. But if you will uh, look at the border wall, this this new wall is roughly two or three times taller than the wall that was here today. It represents the kind of of new border wall measures that we will be implementing adding, all along the southern border. To, it's not adding any feet to the wall that's already This here. is the beginning of keeping our promise to the American people that we're going to build a wall. So the vice president acknowledges now it's more of the beginning of an idea of keeping a promise, not the start of a wall, as the president claimed. And again, it is a movie with multiple sequels. Last year, Budget Director Mick Mulvaney stood in the White House briefing room and showed pictures of construction at two locations to prove that the president was making good on his promise to build a wall. We sent Gary Tuckman to those locations as well. They had actually nothing to do with President Trump. It was common knowledge in the area that the wall in question dated back to the Bush administration and was just being repaired. The president and his supporters may be eager to show that he's keeping his promise to build a wall, but so far... He's not building a new wall, no matter how many times they announce it has begun. Gary Tuckman joins me now. So listening to the vice president there, I mean, he did sort of dance around a little bit, but actually did concede that this was a replacement fence, not a new border wall, as the president told his 51 million Twitter followers. So he says this is taller. Well, firstly, Anderson, our apologies for the desert dust storm right here. And secondly, this observation. The vice president clearly did not want to disrespect the president. He didn't want to throw him under the bus. But yes, he did acknowledge this is a replacement project. He told me we are going to build a wall. He did not say that this structure behind me is the beginning of that southern border wall, unlike President Trump, who issued that tweet with the pictures from this construction project. I also want to mention to you the security here, Anderson, elaborate security when the vice president was in this spot. This is a no man's land on the American side, but on the Mexican side, a bustling town on the other side of the fence. You can see that's the new fence right there. The opening is a large opening where there were scores of protesters chanting. Any one of them at any time could have run from Mexico into the United States if they wanted to, where Vice President Pence was standing, but nobody did. It was quiet. The vice president was here for about 30 minutes and then left.
Anderson. All right, Gary, thanks very much. We're going to hear from Jorge Ramos next hour about all of this coming up. As the deadline approaches for President Trump to possibly rip up the Iran deal, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says his country has proof the Iranian government has been lying about its nuclear program. Hey, it's Howard Beck, and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes analyst Richard Jefferson on Bleacher Report's The Full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, all I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In a dramatic nationally televised speech, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said his intelligence service had secured tens of thousands of documents as well as computer disks that prove Iran was, in his words, uh, brazenly lying about its nuclear weapons program, even as the 2015 Iran nuclear deal was being negotiated. To emphasize his point even further, much of his speech was in English aimed at President Trump. This is a terrible deal. It should never have been concluded. And in a few days' time, President Trump will decide, will make his decision on what to do with the nuclear deal. I'm sure he'll do the right thing. The right thing for the United States, the right thing for Israel, and the right thing for the peace of the world. Well, President Trump has until May 12th to decide whether to continue waiving sanctions on Iran that were lifted as part of the overall nuclear bargain. And after Netanyahu's speech, President Trump said he has been, quote, 100 percent right to criticize the deal. Joining me now, retired General uh, Michael Hayden, a former CIA director and former NSA director, who's the author of a brand new book, The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. Um, first of all, on this deal, I mean, do you think there are grounds for the president to rip up the deal, as he's been threatening to do, based on what Netanyahu said? Not based on this. This is all baked in. I mean, we, we knew the Iranians were lying about the existence of this weapons program prior to 2003. This isn't new information <clears throat> no. dealing with no. what they're doing right now. That, that, it, it, the outline, the arc, not new. Now, he's got new details. Mm -hmm. it appears to have been a tremendous coup on the part of Israeli intelligence getting additional information, but it doesn't change the plot line. They had a weaponization program until 2003. They denied it. They continued to lie about it. I complained uh, during the negotiations that we should have made them turn their cards face up with what we call PMDs, the previous military dimensions of the program. We didn't force it, and so we just let it ride, gave them a hall pass, but we knew they were lying. That was baked into the original deal. So you're saying when it's baked into the original deal, meaning <clears throat> the U.S. knew they were lying and therefore made the deal so tough, it, it, was, a, a, it was based it, on the assumption that they're lying and this is how we verify. It was based on the premise that they had a program. It was based on the premise the program had made certain advances. It was based on the program, based on the reality that they lied about the program. Mm. And, and therefore, that shaped what we tried to negotiate. So in your opinion, what Netanyahu's just done doesn't change anything about the validity no. of the deal? No. It, it's, like I said, it was all baked in. I think we should have made them be more forthcoming, but we knew they were lying at the time. I'm wondering what you make of North Korea, the, the movement with South Korea, the, the, the meeting with Kim Jong-un. Uh, I mean, it's very dramatic to see yeah. him crossing over that border. Uh, do you buy what they're selling? Uh, who, the North, North Koreans? Koreans. Um, not yet. Uh, this is the fourth time 
we've gotten right. to this place. We've done it with three previous administrations, and we've not had much success. So we'll see where it goes forward from here. Credit, credit to the administration for getting here. Uh, that's really important. But but we've only begun the hard work now. I, I want to ask you about your new book, The Assault on intelligence. I mean, is what Netanyahu is saying, is that an example of the assault on intelligence? Well, more, more to the point, the White House, after the Netanyahu speech, uh, issued a statement that Iran has a robust clandestine nuclear weapons program. Now, that flies in the face of a national intelligence estimate that I was involved in in 2007. And Anderson, to the best of my knowledge, that remains the American estimate, that that, that one chunk, you know, not, not, not the centrifuges, which was a separate issue, not the ICBMs, a separate issue, but actually constructing a weapon, that that had stopped in 2003. And I'm fond of saying that judgment then was based not on the absence of evidence, but on evidence of absence. Mm. And I don't know of anything that's changed that. So it's going to be really interesting now. What do the intel guys say about the press release that just came out of the White House? So, I mean, you're talking about the, the, the subtitle of the book is American National Security in an Age of, of Lies. Yeah. Um, how does intelligence adapt to this age that we're in? It, 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 it's really hard. Um, so... You, We've, we've seen a pattern from the White House of saying things that intelligence just can't back up, and I'm, I'm, I'm being, being kind here. So you try to convince the president in closed sessions with regard to what you believe objective reality is. You know, it, it, it's not so, so much that you're not winning the argument in the process. It's that the decisions seem to be separated from the process. Mm -hmm. And you saw H.R. McMaster leave the White House a couple of weeks ago. I mean, H.R. spent a year trying to connect the processes of government to the decision-making of, of the White House, and it just doesn't well, seem to have I mean, that's a frightening statement that the decision-making is just <clears throat> divorced from the... Uh from the actual intelligence. Yeah. So, for example, and this may be a minor issue, but it's current, that press release tonight. Uh, in the book, my life experience uh, would have had the White House not ever issuing that without running it by the intel guys to make sure they could live with the statement. I, I don't see that pattern in this administration. But it's interesting. I mean, we're at a point now where the folks on Capitol Hill almost ignore what the president is saying. It's sort of like, oh, he's just that guy who's, you know, mumbling yeah. that stuff. Um, it doesn't actually necessarily mean that's what the new policy is. You know, the American presidency is a powerful office. One of its great powers is the bully pulpit. Right. One of its great powers is what the president says. Now, you just told me that the American Congress just tunes it out. I don't know that the rest of the world does, though, and that makes that makes life hard. The um, <clears throat> you also write that, that the modern intelligence enterprise, which which you, you obviously believe is essential uh, to the U.S now seems at odds with important elements of, of American life. Yeah. What do you... you we, we, we have collectively, and we've talked about the administration, but, you know, <clears throat> the president's reflecting changes in our political culture. Well, the, the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year for 2016 was post-truth. Mm. Post-truth is defined as decision-making based upon feeling and emotion rather than objective data. And, and I think we see that broadly throughout our society. I mean, you guys comment on it every night. How could people believe that? Political beliefs, political affiliations have now become articles of faith. And it's really hard to unseat a belief with facts if it wasn't based on facts to begin with. So what is... 
I mean, how do you get back to, I mean, look, obviously there have been incredible intelligence failures over the years, sure. so there's understandable why people would be skeptical sure. of, of American intelligence. Certainly what the president has said has not helped uh, the, you know, the confidence in American intelligence or a lot of the institutions. What needs to change? So, so that's, that's a point related to an earlier question. Um, I, I mentioned in the book, you know, obviously everyone's got to follow their own conscience with regard to what it is they say or don't say within or outside the administration. But more important than the individual, Anderson, is what you just suggested, preserving the institutions. And I fear what's going on now, particularly with justice and the FBI, but the intel community, I think, uh, shares in this, is a chiseling away at the institutions that serve us and on which we rely mm. to preserve our liberty and security. That's the collateral damage to, to this struggle that's now going on. And that's not easily rebuilt. It, uh, once you begin chiseling away, I mean, what will it take? And, and here's, here's the danger I see. And so I see folks in my tribe, or in justice, or in FBI, pushing back against what is an incredibly norm-busting administration, mm. a norm-busting president. But in the pushing back, we have to be oh so careful that we don't bust our own norms. Mm. Uh, and so for, for my folks, it might be in leaking. Mm. All right? And, and so we see this deterioration that's coming about because of the, the broader dynamic within society. Mm. It scares me, and that's why I wrote the book. Uh, the book is uh, The Assault on Intelligence, American National Security in an Age of Lies. Very timely. Michael Hayden, thanks so much. Thank Appreciate you. it. Uh, coming up, breaking news. The New York Times is reporting that Robert Mueller has at least four dozen questions he wants to ask the president about his ties to Russia and other topics. The Times obtained a list of the questions. The latest on that next. Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.